Abraham and Sarah were landless and barren, which is kind of a rough starting point to becoming a great nation. Barrenness carries a lot of images. Um, maybe immediately you might think of like a desolate, kind of desert-like terrain with, you know, maybe like a tumbleweed, you know, rolling by. You may think of infertile soil. You may think of an infertile womb. I feel like the images of barrenness just kind of roll off. They kind of just spill out. We have so many of them. I remember cleaning up um, an abandoned cemetery one time that had just been overtaken by uh, weeds and brushed where you couldn't even hardly find the tombstones. And it was just so barren there. I remember the destruction that I saw in Pascagoula, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina came through and it was so barren. I've walked down streets and driven through cities that felt barren, abandoned houses and empty businesses. I've passed people on busy sidewalks that have blank stares and disengaged faces and they just look so barren. When you plan a party and no one shows up, when you start a business that fails, when you are lonely, when you have to quit, when the medicine isn't working or the life changes aren't helping, when you keep relapsing, when the paycheck isn't enough, when the marriage isn't making it, it's the garden that won't grow, it's the baby that just won't form. There's so many painful images and experiences of barrenness. But you know, the thing that I keep coming back to, even as I think through all of these images and experiences of barrenness, is I think about what it feels like inside to just feel barren. It's this like aching, empty, kind of hopeless feeling. Uh, depression is a quick trip to feeling barren inside. It, it just feels like nothing can grow here. There's so many experiences that lead us to that place of feeling barren that I feel safe to assume that all of us on some level have experienced barrenness. And when you are experiencing barrenness, when you feel barren inside, the story of Abraham and Sarah does not really sound like good news. Don't get me wrong, it's good news for them. It's good news like it is for the, the other person that got the job or when someone else feels accepted or when someone else has the baby. It's good news for them, but it just doesn't feel like good news for us. So where in this story is the good news? To have a better context of this story, you have to actually kind of go backwards a bit into chapter 17, which is when actually the first time that God appeared to Abraham and he made a covenant with him that he would be the father of a great nation. And you almost have to pause there for a minute because this was so radical that, that God would make a covenant with Abraham. 
it's just not something that that they understood was a thing that that gods would do, right? In their understanding of deities, gods don't make covenants with people. They don't make promises with people. So already, this super radical thing that God is doing is setting God apart from all the other gods, right? He is different, and he is holy. And as scripture goes, the first time when God shows up and tells Abraham, you're going to have a son, and you're going to be the father of a great nation, Abraham falls to the ground and laughs, right? So it's sounding familiar. This is like the common reaction. But when this happens, God doesn't really seem to be offended, but he's like not going to let this go, right? So he says, well, your son's name is going to be Isaac, which means he laughs, right? So now in chapter 18, it's only a few months later, and God shows up again, and really only for one reason, Abraham forgot to tell his wife. So this huge thing happened, and Abraham didn't share it with Sarah. What is going on? It makes you pause. Like, what is going on inside of Abraham? Or what is going on in that relationship between him and Sarah that God would show up, and would announce this huge, groundbreaking, history-changing covenant with Abraham, and he doesn't rush home to his wife to share the news with her, especially considering it kind of involves her womb. You know, like, that seems kind of, like, considerate. You know, but he doesn't. He doesn't go home and share it with his wife, and so God makes another visit just for Sarah. So after showing this incredible hospitality to three strangers, which could be a whole other sermon in and of itself, um, God asks the question to Abraham that he came to ask. Where, Abraham, is your wife, Sarah? And now this was not a question of location. God knew where Sarah was. God does not lose people. This was a question of relationship. It's similar to when God um, asked Adam and Eve in the garden when they're hiding. God asked them, where are you? It's similar to when Cain kills Abel and God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? It's similar to when the angel approaches Hagar and says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? So when Abraham is asked, where is your wife, Sarah? The question is exposing a rupture in their relationship. There's a disconnection there that explains her absence. There's a space between them, and it is barren. Abraham's reply to the visitor kind of reminds me of what my kids might say. It's like when when you've been caught but you're still, like, trying to play it cool, you know? And he's just like, oh, yeah, she's in the tent, you know? Like, let's not bring her into this, you know? Let's let's keep her, you know, here in the tent, in her place. This is Abraham who's already tried to, to trick people into thinking Sarah is his sister, right? And he actually is going to do this again even after Isaac is born because he feels afraid. And so he's he's just always, like, keeping her at arm's length. But God sees Sarah. 
And I love in verse 15, uh, the way that God kind of plays the omnipotent part on Sarah. Uh, you know, when, when I studied this, I actually studied it in NRSV, but it's printed in NIV, and the wording is a little bit different. I like NRSV a little bit better. But um, Sarah's, you know, inside the tent, and <clears throat> she has not shown herself. She hasn't come out of the tent. And so when the visitors say, Abraham, where is Sarah? It's kind of already starting to say, okay, like there's something going on here within these visitors. Like they know about Sarah. How do they know Sarah? Um, but when Sarah hears that she will be having a son, she laughs to herself, right? It's not audible. It's like to herself she laughs. And to herself she thinks, you know, how can this be? I'm old. Now I get to have pleasure. Like how is this possible? And then God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? So when Sarah responds and says, oh, I, I didn't laugh, you know, it's actually kind of fair, right? Because she didn't audibly laugh. She just kind of laughed within herself. But I love what God says. And in the NRSV, this is, this is how it goes. God says, oh, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> and I just imagine, maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I imagine the visitor saying this with a smile. You know, it's, it's kind of endearing. It's like, oh, Sarah, I, I know you. I see you. Yes, you laughed, you know. And what God is doing here that's so awesome is that God is, is drawing Sarah into the story. God is shining the spotlight on her experience. He's making space for her, which even she is trying to edit out. God sees Sarah. And God sees not only the barrenness of Sarah's womb, but God sees the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah's relationship. And this is the reason why God has come again. A few weeks ago, we talked about um, this really cool word in Hebrew. We talked about how in Hebrew, usually nouns um, come from verbs, but that there's this unique word um, in the case of the verb mercy, where it actually comes from a root noun. And the root noun for the word mercy is womb. So for the Hebrew people, their understanding of what mercy or compassion is came from this understanding of the, the rakim. I can't say it it's like a it's like a throat thing, but rakim is kind of the, the Englishy way of saying it. And the way that we translate that into English is we've given it the word womb, because that's, that's the closest way we can make sense of what the Hebrew meant for this word. Um, but what, what the Hebrew people understood about the womb was just that it like happened somewhere in here, right? That, that a woman would be in labor and there would be this like pain and aching and groaning and then life would come. And in that same kind of area, when, when you were hungry, then you would ache for pains of hunger, and you would need to be filled with food so that you could experience life, right? And, and when you're grieving and when you're in distress, you feel ache and pain. It's just this, this area here that it seems like, like there's, there's aching, but then from that same place comes 
life. <clears throat> and so this, this rahim, this manifestation of, of the, the rahamim, which is the mercy of God, it aches and it groans, and these labor pains are experienced by God, and what is birthed out of that is mercy. And that's how these two words have been understood and how they work together in relationship. This is, this is the noun that gets God to the verb mercy. God is merciful is one of the most common descriptors in scripture. And that mercy and compassion of God that emerge from those laboring aches it's an experience that God shares with us in our suffering. God shares with us in those aches of barrenness. In the, uh, in the creation narrative, God creates space, and then God fills that space. So in day one, there's space created, and, and then that space is filled on day four, right? And then on day two, space is filled on day five. And then on day three, that space is filled on day six. And then on day seven, God creates empty space and does not fill it. And on all the other days, what God says is that this is good. But on day seven, God says this is holy, that empty space, it's different, and it's set apart. And I wonder if barrenness is holy. The good news of this story is not that it's never too late for God to give you the thing that you long for. That is not the good news of this story. The good news of this story is that our aching and groaning that resounds from those empty, barren places in us is the very labor that is birthing mercy and compassion out of us and moving us towards the likeness of God. That this empty space is holy. That this is not just a human experience, but that this is a divine experience. We're gonna we're gonna end our time with some prayer. And I want to give you a quick explanation of what this prayer will look like so that you can stay present with it and, and understand what's going on. I'm gonna lead us in a brief prayer. And then I'm going to pause for some wondering questions. And these wondering questions are meant to be held in contemplation. They're, they're questions that we ask God, we don't ask ourselves. And then we notice what comes to mind without trying to arrive at an answer. It's a practice. In other words, if you need a different kind of framing of it, if you remember what it's like when you're a child, and you think of this, this kind of crazy question that you don't know the answer to, and then you just start throwing out 
ideas of, of what maybe it could be, just wonder <coughs> over the answer without even having to necessarily know what the real answer is. That's what these wondering questions invite you to. And so if you'll prepare your hearts with me, let's pray. God, you see our barrenness in every form, in ourselves, between us and others. And God, I am grateful for our empty spaces. Our tendency is to fill them or to avoid them or to be utterly consumed by them. But I pray that you would help us to receive these holy places and to labor alongside you to, to be nurtured into what you are by nature, merciful and compassionate, and in solidarity with those who ache. And so as children, we come to you and we ask, God, where are you? Welcoming God, may we release our fears into your embrace. Cast our reliance on the structures of our minds into the abyss. May we let them go. May we find our life in your reformation, recreation, redemption, and resurrection. Help us in our necessary deaths so that we may receive and your gifts. And forever we will sing, you're the Lord.